singularity. My name is Nicola, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a review on iTunes or by simply becoming a patron via interviewthefuture.com. Today, my guest is London futurist David Wood. Wood was one of the pioneers of the smartphone industry and is currently a futurist, writer, educator, consultant, and speaker. I have to say that this is our third time we have, we have David on our show. And I suggest that you guys check out his previous two interviews because I think they were absolutely fantastic. Today, we're going to focus on his most recent book, which is titled The Singularity Principles, Anticipating and Managing Cataclysmically Disruptive Technologies, which in my view is literally the most comprehensive framework for preparing for, and if we listen to David, riding the tsunami of change that is coming our way instead of drowning in it. So, welcome to Singularity FM, David. It's a real pleasure to be here, Nicola. Fantastic. So, as a tradition, you know, on my podcast, my first question is always to ask my guests to introduce themselves in a sentence or two, maybe for those of our viewers and listeners who may not have seen the previous two interviews with you. So who is David Wood in your own words? I spent 25 years in the early days of the mobile computing and smartphone industries, foreseeing part of the future and building part of the future and realizing that although smartphones changed the world, there were new technological trends that would change the world even more decisively. So from then on, I have been a futurist looking at these other trends and I am most of all concerned that we are losing control of the technologies we are creating, and we are losing control of the systems, the industries, the whole economic system, the political system that creates the technologies. And therefore, we need to pay attention urgently. Very well. So that, that gives us a nice segue to, to your book, which is uh, your latest monumental kind of uh, fruit of labor. Um, I don't know how you do it, but, you know, I'm still struggling five years later with my sort of second book and you're popping them like there is no tomorrow, which is quite impressive. Uh, so I, I congratulate you for that. And the quality doesn't seem to suffer at all, but it's actually very, very high and very comprehensive and very uh, deep and profound in, in so many ways. So let me ask you first. What is the story behind the singularity principles? Why now? People have been talking about the singularity for 30 years or so, of course. And you have been talking, Nicola, about the singularity for, I'm not sure, 15 years or so. So why now? Well, we are getting closer and we are getting more out of control. The technologies we created in the past sometimes almost got out of control such as our nuclear weapons technologies, which we struggled and somehow prevented accidental wars, partly by luck, partly by some good judgment. And then there are the technologies of the fossil fuel industry and all the other things we do, the dysfunctional ways in which we look after agriculture, all the things that generate more greenhouse gases. We are almost out of control 
with the influence on the climate. And we are almost out of control with our social media technologies, the algorithms which serve some purposes very well, on the whole, increasing advertising, serve other purposes very badly. Can we change these things? It's not easy. But going beyond all these other technologies, there is the technology of artificial general intelligence, which might happen a lot more quickly than many people would predict based only on linear forecasts. So I think we could have a very powerful artificial intelligence within the decade, and it may not be fully general, may not have all the same characteristics as you and I, Nicola, in terms of being able to have such a rich, multifaceted conversation, but it will be incredibly powerful and, if we are not careful, incredibly dangerous. So we need to give this subject our attention again, how we can, as you rightly put it in the beginning, how we can ride this tsunami of change to a very wonderful destination rather than drowning. And it won't just be one or two people drowning. It might be all eight billion of us. Yeah, Elon Musk, uh, of course, has gone on the record saying that in his view, which, by the way, I do not accept, I do not agree with, in his view, AI is the most dangerous uh, sort of existential risk, bigger than nukes. Uh, in my opinion, that's not the case. In my opinion, nukes are a bigger threat and probably humanity is number one, by the way, in my book of existential risks. We are our own uh, greatest mortal danger. (laughs) Well, I partly agree, but I have a different view. It is the combination of humanity and nuclear weapons and AI that could spell the biggest problems. It's weapon systems that have some elements of AI controlling them and some elements of short-sighted, egotistical, vengeful, spiteful humans overseeing them. It's the combination that makes things worst. Yeah, I agree with that. That's very well said. Uh, But since you're talking about the combination, let me bring a point that I was planning to bring in a little later, Um, perhaps maybe as a by way of framing our conversation a little bit. So, and because you always have kind of this skill and this uh, sort of wisdom of kind of tweaking and fine-tuning and sort of improving on my statements. So, um, in my view, there is no such thing as climate change, nuclear weapons, uh you know, ocean acidification, soil erosion, species extinction, uh, what have you, as separate issues. In fact, they're all one and the same issue, which which plays itself over and over again in a diversity of different realms. And the issue in my books is humanity's technological and scientific power far exceeding our wisdom to control and utilize it in a safe, non-suicidal, non-destructive manner. And therefore, if that is indeed the case, more techno-solutionism is not going to resolve the problem because it's only going to make the gap bigger. The essence or the nature of our issue is one of control, discipline, and wisdom, and maybe ethics. 
rather than technology, because we have many of those problems that I mentioned, where we have the science, it's very clear, it's indisputable. We have much of the technology, if not all of it, to start making a difference today. And yet we doesn't seem to be able to get ourselves together. Therefore, the, the essence or the very core of the problem is not one of more power uh, in terms of science and technology, but it's actually one of more discipline, more ethics. And, and therefore, the danger is if we only push for more science and technology, the gap is going to grow bigger, and therefore it's not going to make the problem better, but actually worse. I think I agree with all of that. I have said in my book that just becoming more intelligent will not by any means guarantee a better future. What we need is more wisdom as well as more intelligence. And I agree with you. We have to bring into our consciousness many of these questions of ethics and direction and desirability and discipline. The question is, can technology wisely directed help us in that search for more wisdom? And I think it is possible that will happen. After all, how do people gain wisdom? Sometimes via the technology of books. Sometimes via the technology of YouTube videos. Sometimes via the technology of uh, iTunes podcasts. Sometimes via the technology of headsets. The ideas come from the other side of the planet, from decades earlier maybe, and inspire us and change our lives. So can technology help? Yes, provided we think hard enough and wisely enough to ensure that that is the outcome. Well, that's very well said. So let's talk about that wisdom because in my opinion, and, and let me ask you before we jump into the details of your book, another uh, kind of thing that you touch upon in it actually, and you say in a way that it is not exactly useful to use ethics as a way to frame our approach to the singularity. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yes, that was a fairly controversial part of my book, but I think where I come from is something a bit more basic, which is avoiding catastrophic harm and uh, taking advantage of profound benefits. I believe that technology can profoundly improve lives in all kinds of ways, but it can also wreak terrible havoc, either destroying the entire society, existential threat, or destroying huge parts of it, a catastrophic threat. And so that's my starting point. Now, in some parts of the world, in some areas of life, ethics has got itself a bad name. It's the people who say, no, don't do this, don't do that. You're not being fair. And questions of what is fair, questions of what is equal access, are debatable. And you can have lots of different controversies about that. There are many circumstances in which different intuitions about fairness will lead you to different outcomes. And likewise, with different intuitions about equality of opportunity. So these are important discussions, but I don't want to start by presupposing any one elaborate system of ethics. I don't want to attach my views to, say, Immanuel Kant or uh, any other ethicists. I just want to say, let's start from, will this technology increase the probability of catastrophic problems? 
or will it, can it also increase the possibility of much healthier lives, much more improved nutrition, uh, helping people to escape poverty lines and be better educated and so on. So that's where I come from. Well, my definition of ethics is a code or a framework of principles that guide my life or our life. So are your singularity principles, therefore not in their very essence, a kind of an ethical framework, a kind of a, you know, list of ethical principles that would allow us to hopefully avoid, you know, self-destruction and promote, you know, the flourishing of, of humanity throughout the the future, the endless future, hopefully, almost, almost endless? That's a good question. That is a fair question. I haven't thought of it like that, but it is true. I offer these principles, the set of 21, as shortcuts, as general principles that on the whole will help to decrease the chances of catastrophic failure and increase the chances of profound benefits. So when I say, for example, to take one of the principles, reject opacity, in other words, encourage transparency, that is there, not because there's any strong prehistoric ethical code that says opacity is bad or transparency is good, but because it's my judgment that in today's life, if we have AI systems that work in ways that we can't understand, that's setting up terrible dangers for the future. I agree with you, David. All I just want to point out that is like, you can't escape it, my friend. In my view, uh, you may prefer not to take the Kantian framework or any other framework of ethics that is commonly referred to as, uh, in philosophical terms, as, as ethics. But your own framework is inevitably going to be an alternative ethical framework because it involves judgment, it involves value uh, judgment and positioning and uh, prescriptions to avoid certain things and to uh, improve the probability of certain other things. And therefore, at its core, in its essence, it is inevitably, in my book, an ethical framework. That's fair. And I actually have an essay to write to contribute to a forthcoming book on implications of transhumanism for ethics. And I am assigned to write about virtues point of view. So I haven't written that yet, but I'm sure I'll be referring back in my mind to this conversation when that time comes. Very well. Let's. It's time for us to jump in the details. So let's start with your thesis. What's David Wood's thesis? The thesis is that technology is more and more powerful and that we are not in control of it. And that in the past, we have said, well, if it goes wrong, we'll learn from it. You know, we'll fail smart. As Facebook used to say, move fast and break things. And if things get broken, well, we'll be wiser. But my thesis is that with the technologies we are developing today, some of these breakages will be too terrible. 
They may destroy all of humanity or they may destroy hundreds of millions of people. And in either case, we can't just blunder into that and say, oops, let's uh, be wiser now. So we have to move ahead with a combination of a precautionary instincts and also more proactive monitoring. And unless we raise the caliber of that foresight and management, we risk ending up in a new dark age in which any of a number of uh, things could go wrong with technological systems in which we have placed too much trust and lost control. Uh, by the way, was that your book that I saw there? Maybe you can w wave it and, and lift it for us because I read the digital version of it, so I don't, I don't have a physical copy yeah. to wave and show. This is the proof version. And later today, Amazon are delivering to me five of the first uh, real books. It's quite slim, actually. You said it's heavy or big, and I think the ideas in it are profound. But this is a smaller book. If I just show my most recent previous book, it's a much bigger book, Vital yeah. Foresight. And although yeah. some of the ideas are the same, I felt that some of the ideas tucked away in the end of this were likely to be missed which is my reason for picking them out and writing a book just on them, the singularity principles. Oops, upside down, I'm sorry. So there we are, the vision of a swirling mass of technologies and infrastructure that might be pretty and might be attractive, but leading us to a destination that when we get close, we'll say, whoa, I didn't want to come here. I wish I'd read the instructions more carefully. I wish I'd been a bit more thoughtful instead of just getting too excited. Yeah, and the, the word that I used was comprehensive, by the way, uh, and, and with profound ideas. Uh, so, so yeah, I I uh, read some of your previous books too, and I know they were they were much bigger. And of course, for the record, maybe we should say that your latest book is an offshoot or a continuation of a chapter in your previous book that you showed us. So that's kind of like the impetus behind it. You had it as a chapter, and then you decided to expand it as an entire book on its own right and it's got much better through the retelling through the many iterations as i've shared it with reviewers and reviewers have come and asked me questions which have led it to this current form yeah so so let me ask you this though because you're a transhumanist also and you know one of the most popular arguably principles in transhumanism is the proactionary principle so in a way, with your thesis, you're saying, or with this book, you're saying the proactionary principle is insufficient. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is that not the case? Yes, that is the case. So there are limits to the precautionary principle, which some transhumanists reacted against. If you just try to avoid risks, you may end up actually getting in a more risky situation because inaction is itself risky. So the criticisms that have been made by very thoughtful people like Max Moore and others of what I might call a naive or foolish or uniform application of the precautionary principle are fair. But neither should we just be saying, let's experiment and learn from our experiments, especially when the consequences are large. And I take a leaf here out of the analysis of Nicholas Talib author of The Black Swan and other things, his distinction is between harm and ruin. And his distinction is between distributions in which they're basically normal, 
which means that if you observe it for a while and you get the mean and you get the standard deviation, you can be fairly sure that results in the future are going to be within three standard deviations of the mean, three sigma. Whereas in other circumstances, what are known as fat-tailed circumstances, you can get new results which are 20 standard deviations away and suddenly your calculations are invalidated you said well at the most we might have a certain number of people dying or a certain number of people losing their bank deposits well no you might get many many more so it's in the cases when you can have fat tails that you most of all need to be proactively vigilant and that's one of my principles uh, particularly pay attention anticipate fat tails yeah, I'm a big fan of Nicholas Taleb's work, uh, especially, I forget the name of his book, but he has a book of, a short book of sort of maxims uh, that are like packed with wisdom and that, you know, I, I listen to as an audio book uh, every once in a while, just because it spurs so much in me. Every time I hear those, it's like fantastic. Um, okay, so let's start kind of unpacking the concepts and the issues around the concepts that you go through great lengths to kind of list and clarify in your book. So first of all, perhaps we should start about with the kind of biggest confusions and biggest distortions about the technological singularity. So I'm quite controversial in what I say in some of my chapters. I claim that there is something I describe as the singularity shadow, which are a set of distortions of the basic concept, which uh, in turn annoy critics or annoy external observers. And they think, oh, these singularitarians, they are naive. They are too excitable. They don't understand what they're talking about. So I list seven characteristics of singularity shadow, including singularity timescale determinism, which says that we can be fairly sure that the singularity, the advent of artificial superintelligence will take place by a certain time. The singularity outcome determinism, which says, you know, we can be fairly sure it's going to be a good outcome. There's a singularity hyping in which you look at a particular product and you say, gosh, this is great. This is the company that's going to do things. Let's just follow this method. And then there is something called a preoccupation with a singularity, which says, well, we don't need to worry about shorter term issues like nuclear weapons or climate change because we're going to have the singularity soon and the singularity is going to sort out all these things for us. I think that these, these aspects of the singularity shadow and a few others are all very dangerous. You know, Unless we speak uh, with a broader understanding, then we are risking the singularity concept falling into ridicule. And often it does happen. Uh, people, quite well-educated people, professors of AI, AI leaders inside companies, they roll their eyes when the singularity is mentioned. They say, oh, you are singularitarians, you assume such and such, or you presuppose such and such. And I want to say, no, the core ideas of the singularity are simpler. They are less specific, but they are incredibly important. Yeah, I have experienced that myself quite a bit, uh, though the majority of it, I have to say, was in the earlier days, like a decade or so ago. 
nowadays that happens it still happens but it's less common i would say at least in my experience now you also have this concept of nbic what is nbic and how is it related to the singularity so the nbic concept is by no means from me it was by William Sims Bainbridge in around 1998. If I remember the timing, it may not be exactly then. He wrote a report for the National Science Foundation in which he pointed out what he thought would be the drivers of change in the coming decades. And I now call this the basis of the fourth industrial revolution. And it is an important stepping stone that accelerates our progress towards AGI. N stands for nanotech, B for biotech, I for infotech, and C for cognotech. So the nanotech is being able to more precisely position and organize material at the molecular level, not just new materials, but in due course, new types of assembly factories, as Eric Drexler long ago anticipated and which has been long delayed, but I think there are reasons to expect this will happen at some stage in the next few decades. And associated with that is more precise placement of things like quantum computing, more careful control over the sensors that we are creating to allow us to understand more about the universe. So this nanotech, biotech is reprogramming our genes. Infotech is today's information technology. In particular, it is machine learning of big data, something that has exploded since around 2012. And Cognotech is when we understand and improve our neurons. And ideally, this will make us not only more rationally intelligent, but if you get it right, it will make us more capable all-round humans, emotionally intelligent, socially intelligent, enlightened as well. So these four things actually interact and support each other. So improvements in one of these four quadrants can often accelerate improvements in other quadrants. And with the overall acceleration between them, they also make artificial general intelligence come closer. Do you feel that some of those are moving not as fast as originally predicted? For example, especially Eric Drexler's uh, nanotech. I mean, I think he wrote his kind of seminal book on nanotechnology in the 1980s. And in my estimate, and I'm no nanotechnology expert, but as far as I can see, and as far as I can tell, that's probably the best example that things are definitely not moving exponentially there. So I write a lot about this, not so much in this book, but in the previous book, Vital Foresight, about better understanding rates of change in technology. And one analysis is, well, exponential just means slow, 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 and then fast, fast, fast. It means disappointing before they're devastating. But that is too glib. There are many reasons why a technology may proceed much more slowly than you would imagine from a simple exponential curve. Typically, you need many things to come into place before the true possibilities can be realized. A couple of examples, electric cars, they've been spoken about for a long time, but before you can have widespread adoption of electric cars, you need a distribution of charging networks. Mobile phones, mobile phones an industry I know and love. Before you can have a widespread system of useful mobile phones, you needed to build out the 
wireless networks, the GSM networks. And people were reluctant to invest in networks when they thought that people wouldn't be investing in building the handsets. And when you come to smartphones, uh, which I was even more involved with, for successful smartphones, you need the devices. You also needed the smart networks. You needed the retailers who understood the smartphones. By the way, that was necessary for mobile phones too. In Europe, there was something called Carphone Warehouse, which had a big role there. Anyway, for smartphones, you need also applications and you needed application stores, and you needed uh, developers who knew how to write applications, and you needed a platform that supported it. And all of these things independently needed to come into place. So often the progress is slower than you would expect from a naive application of Moore's Law. There is even a phrase, it's a bit of a joke, I apologize, it's called the Demi-Moore's Law. It wasn't made up by the actress of that name, it was made up by a monitor consultant, Chakra Bakra, I forget his name exactly, Bakra Chakravorty, who said that change, because of these system effects, often goes at half the pace, so demi the pace that you'd expect. But then eventually, when things are in place, then it might go double or triple or even 10 times faster than you expect, which is why smartphones suddenly exploded from about 2007 and 2010 onwards after a slow gestation beforehand. Now, with Drexler's nanotechnology, there have been so many obstacles in the way, but there have been some signs of progress too. A few years ago, the Nobel Prize for Chemistry was awarded to three professors for their work, not in building a whole nanofactory, but in building machines at the atomic level or components of machines at the atomic level. And I would point to the book by J. Storrs Hall. It's called, uh, Where Is My Flying Car?, and you might think of it as an account of why we don't have flying cars, and there's a lot of that in it. But he also has a very interesting analysis of why nanotechnology in the Drexelian vision, which is also in a similar way the vision of Richard Feynman way back in 1959, why that hasn't happened yet, but why it probably will happen in the next 10 to 20 years. So it's especially slow, but the potential is there for it to go especially fast in due course. Wow, great. So so you're optimistic on that. And of course, that's, as you say in your book, a double, a double, one of many examples of double-edged sword. Um, what's your stance on the actual Moore's law when it comes to computing power and processors? Have we slowed down in the past, you know, I don't know, five, 10 years or no? Because here's my experience. Uh, you know, the traditional classic example of Moore's law is that you know, every, quote, 18 months or so, uh, the CPU or processing power of a microprocessor for, let's say, $1,000 uh, would roughly double. Well, I was buying a laptop for my wife uh, about eight months ago, and her previous laptop was six years old. So she had a Dell XPS 15, and I replaced it with a blade, uh, Razer Blade 14. Um, and not only that, but her original laptop costed $2,000. The new one costed $2,400. So we actually spend more money on the new one, but let's call it inflation or whatever. So let's say that the two laptops are roughly in the same you know, budget. So for the same money, and let's just focus on processing power. So I run a few benchmarks, and here's what surprised me. The most kind of optimistic benchmark difference in those uh, 
two computers was about 60%. And now if Moore's law were to be accurate, um, it would have had to be two on the power of three. So it would have had to be eight times more powerful for six years uh, in terms of time duration difference between the first and the second laptop. And yet I was getting benchmarks where I was getting something like 46, 47% improvement, which is not insignificant, but it's certainly not up to, you know, eightfold. And the best I could get was like low 60%, like maybe 62, 63%. So the average was like 56, 7%. So that was my experience with that one example. And of course, that's a very limited example, but many other people, and I've talked to some uh, microprocessor designers and stuff, they have said, uh, you know, that Intel has uh, had to um, rearrange or uh, kind of change their timeline for, you know, selling uh, new computer designs several times now in the last six years or so. Uh, And so, we are a little bit, if not a lot, behind the pace of the, the expected pace of Moore's law. What, what's your take on all of this? Well, that's a fascinating personal story, and it does match with what I have seen as well. So Moore's law is a rich subject, and we could probably fill an hour talking about it, but I'll try to be briefer. There are many things that the improvements in hardware power can give you, and it used to give you faster frequencies. But it turns out that these faster frequencies generated more heat. And so maybe 15 years ago, the design switched from making the clock speed faster and faster to instead having multiple cores in devices and gaining benefits that way as well. But even so, there are limits to the improvements and the times between each new architecture, at least by Intel, are slowing down. Some people say that other manufacturers are doing a better job, AMD perhaps. Samsung, I think, saw recently have come up with, now I'm going to get the details wrong, it might be three nanometer architecture, which is uh, remarkably small. But even so, I think the speed of improvements is more or less certainly slowing down. Does that mean we will not get to AI? or artificial general intelligence? Well, I will point to broader things that there are other improvements in hardware which have made bigger difference, which is not in the CPUs, which is the kinds of things that Intel produced and we have on our laptops, but GPUs, the graphics processing units. And that was part of the reason why there was this big bang in the capability of neural networks around about 2012, when the team under Jeff Hinton in uh, Toronto, Waterloo, I think, uh, managed to shock everybody by their performance that year in the Visual Net Visual Challenge. And it had been programmed to use a GPU. And then people improved GPUs faster than CPUs were improving. And Google have produced TPUs, which are variants of GPUs, but have left out the floating point manipulation and do things with fixed point calculations instead. And I'm sure a thousand and one other other clever things. So that has improved for a while faster than Moore's law itself would have predicted. But even more important is not just the improvements in hardware. Software is very important as well. 
and you can make faster improvements in the performance of a system by improving its software, often, than by improving its hardware. And if you get better algorithms, you can speed up even more. So I think the reason we're going to get more and more powerful AI isn't just because I'm entirely relying on Moore's law holding out, far from it. I think we're going to have new kinds of hardware, including, by the way, quantum computers eventually, but we're going to have more systems in the cloud and we're going to have cleverer software algorithms, which in part are derived from a better understanding of what's happening in the human brain because the neural networks in deep learning are only loosely modeled and what happens in real neurons, especially in their connect connectivity. So as we understand more about that, we are likely to see leaps forwards in AI capabilities, quite independent from improvements in the original statement of Moore's law. Yeah, the GPU example is, is a good one, but I don't fully accept it and I'll tell you why. Um, so, and by the way, Jeffrey Hinton was at the University of Toronto to, to the best of my knowledge. I even actually remember trying to get him on my show about 10 years ago and, and asking for an interview, but I never heard back. Um, anyway, the GPU situation in terms of raw processing power has improved and NVIDIA is of course the world leader in that, but let me tell you why I don't accept that as a good example, because people focus only on the processing power performance, but they're missing one very important uh, factor, which we're supposed to hold constant, but, and that's, that's how they're cheating a little bit. And that factor is supposed to be power consumption. And let me tell you what I mean. So actually I have myself a very old desktop that I'm using at home here. It's about seven years old and it's uh, due to uh, to be upgraded uh, anytime soon now. But, you know, I try to use my tech as long as I can and, and not like throw it away uh, and recycle it as best as I can. Anyway, when I bought this desktop, the original uh, GPU in it uh, was NVIDIA and it was consuming about 125 watts of power. About three and a half years ago, um, I upgraded the GPU card in it only because I do a lot of video editing and stuff like that, which is GPU heavy processing. And so it helps you, even if you keep the CPU the same, to upgrade just the GPU. And then the next GPU was about 250 watts of consumption. Then about a, about a year ago, I actually bought an NVIDIA RTX 3000 series video card. And that one is now consuming 300 watts of power. And now in September or October of this year, we're expecting the long anticipated NVIDIA RTX 4000 series of video cards. And if the rumors are correct, some of those video cards are going to consume upwards of 750 watts of power, which is quite insane for a simple desktop uh, system, you know, it's not simple, obviously, it's a, usually a gamer's system that's going to, or a heavy video editing system uh, that's going to use that kind of a video card. But the point I'm trying to make is that, yes, the processing power has increased, but the original Moore's law suggests that we need to keep other factors constant, factors such as cost and factors such as hopefully uh, power consumption. But in this case, clearly we have a growth in processing power and perhaps maybe even arguably speaking 
faster growth in power consumption, which means that we're kind of reaching uh, diminishing returns of scaling up the processing benefits. In other words, let's say for 10% worth of increased processing capacity, we need to increase 15 or maybe even 20% more power delivery to the system. And that means diminishing returns in the long run. Do you think that makes sense to you? Do, do, have, have you similar observations? So you, what you say about increased power is very relevant. Briefly to defend Gordon Moore, his original statement in the article in 1965 didn't mention power at all. It was simply the number of transistors that it was efficient to pack together onto an integrated circuit. And he observed that in 1959, you had had exactly one transistor in the integrated circuit, and a bit later there were four, and then roughly eight, and then roughly 16. So many other people have uh, coined their own twists on Moore's law. And they have said, well, you've got these three variables, you've got cost, and you've got input power, and you've got uh, the frequencies. And it's true that for a long time, you could improve one with whilst keeping the other two constant. What I think is going to happen now with the GPUs, and there is some signs of this, which I briefly touch on in my book, is that we're going to focus on making them power efficient as well. Sometimes this is called neuromorphic computing, though it's by no means the only idea in this set. People point out that the human brain doesn't seem to consume anything like as much power as these uh, GPUs. It's much less. So what's going on? Is it some kind of magic? Well, uh, we don't understand it yet, but we have vague ideas. And as we understand it more, we may be able to copy some of these techniques into our AI systems. And even if we don't understand what's happening in the brain, there are independent uh, optimization methods that could take place to reduce the power focus. And after all, that's what my company, Symbian, did in the early days of smartphones. We were not just trying to make the phones run faster. We were very concerned about battery life. It was a key criteria for us. We said users must be able to use their smartphones for an entire day without needing to recharge at the very minimum. So we were quite uh, anal. You know, we looked at what's using the battery and, oh, this is using too much battery. Can we rewrite the algorithm so it uses less? Now, people haven't done so much of that so far with their AI algorithms, but for all kinds of reasons, uh, people are starting to look at that. And so this could switch. Yeah. And as probably the worst example of uh, GPU power consumption is, of course, the blockchain network, which uh, from what I hear, consumes maybe 2% of the global energy production on our planet, uh, bigger than many countries, and of course, runs literally on mostly NVIDIA GPUs. Uh, so so that's, that's perhaps the most notorious example. That is a pertinent example. I don't think I mentioned the word blockchain in my book anywhere. But if I'd gone back to the very beginning of this interview, when I talked about technologies that were out of control or systems of technologies that were out of control, I might point to the blockchain system, which, as you said, is consuming huge amounts of electricity. And there are defenders of blockchain who will say, well, it's not too bad, really. It's just renewable energy. 
But I mean, that's a, a very a thin answer in my view. So we have done all this without thinking through the externalities, which is another one of the principles I highlight. Clarify the externalities of what you're doing. So there is the impacts wider than just the simple metrics that you go into the project with. You must have people from multiple perspectives kicking the tires, challenging us. And if the challenges come in soon enough, we can actually change our design so that these externalities do not apply. And now the blockchain community is saying, well, we're not going to have proof of work anymore. We're going to move to proof of stake. And maybe if that had been thought about sufficiently beforehand, it would have been possible to have a blockchain that wasn't having this uh, incredible energy impact. And now they're in the situation where it's hard to change. And, and by the way, of course, there are criticisms of proof of stake as well. By no means everybody thinks it's the right thing to do. Yeah, it's been several times that they were supposed to do the upgrade and they've been delaying it multiple times over and over. Uh, and by the way, the argument for sort of the green energy may hold true for those miners who are located in like, I don't know, Iceland or something like that. Fair enough, maybe. But the reality of the fact is, and that's a well-established fact, is that most miners are in places like China, in places like Vietnam and so on, and they cannot claim access to green energy like the very few examples that we can find in Iceland uh, and so on. So overall, yes, there may be some green examples here and there, but the vast majority of them use dirty power in China and in other places like that, uh, which is very regrettable and, and damaging in my view. Anyway, that was a, a, a bit of a diversion. I hope it was a useful and hopeful diversion because it has pertinence to our conversation here. But let's go back on topic and you have uh, two kind of stances uh, in your book that you talk about. And the first stance that you mention is the so-called transhumanist stance that, that you start with. What is the transhumanist stance, David? So this isn't particularly a book about transhumanism, but uh, transhumanism does involve my outlook. My, it does inform my attitude. And so I pick a few things in the transhumanist stance as an illustration of the ethical viewpoint. So I actually bring this in after the discussion about ethics that we touched on earlier. And I said, well, if you want to talk about ethics, here's my ethics. It's a transhumanist stance. It's the view that the best is in the future rather than trying to identify how did various people live in the past and try to emulate all aspects of their lives. Now, we can indeed learn from great people in the past and from the present. But my view is we can reach higher qualities of uh, health, higher qualities of freedom, higher qualities of uh, consciousness, higher qualities of collaboration and enlightenment in the future than anything that's been possible in the past. So there's a future orientation there. And I refuse to be diminished by people who say, well, we shouldn't try to be much better than we are today. You know, 80 years of age is enough or 120 years of age, that's enough because that's all we've had in the past. And I say, no, we can do better. But the transhumanist stance says that the future can be radically better than the present. It could also be catastrophically worse than the present. And the difference is in what we humans do. Are we humans thinking wisely enough? Are we acting in the right, connected, collaborative way? 
So it's human actions that will make the difference. And I further say that if we tend to stand back, if we tend to be on the sidelines, we are increasing the chances of a bad, a bad outcome rather than a good outcome. So that's part of the transhumanist stance, and it certainly informs my view on the singularity. And by the way, many transhumanists have got exactly the same views. It's not just a minority of transhumanists who worry about the risks as well as the benefits. If you look at the transhumanist declaration written in 1998, it's the nearest thing to a canonical document for transhumanism. Not that transhumanism has anything written on tablets of stone, but if you go there, there are, I think, eight clauses, and of the eight clauses, four of them say in various ways, well, if we're not careful, we could have bad outcomes. Uh, progress involves change, but not all change is progress. We're going to need to set up discussion forums and social structures so that we debate these changes in advance. So that's the part of the transhumanist uh, spirit that I build on in what I recommend as the singularity principles. Now, when it comes to the singularity, there are two perhaps major problems that we need to resolve or address uh, or alleviate one way or another. And those are known as the AI alignment problem and the AI control problem. Uh, can you please take a moment and break down those two for us and perhaps your own proposals or definitions or uh, suggestions to address those? The AI control problem, sometimes called the gorilla problem, after a term introduced by Stuart Russell, an AI professor, thinks, well, gorillas were stronger than humans. How come uh, humans outperformed gorillas? Well, we were able to cooperate. We able to use technology such as enclosures that we built to keep gorillas in or tranquilizer guns, and we had our intelligence. So that's how a less powerful species can control a more powerful species. But what if in the future there is another species, namely AI, which isn't just physically stronger than us, but is intellectually stronger than us and can run rings around us and defeat us with cunning? How could we therefore retain control? If we saw as humans that the AI was losing interest in us and was about to exterminate two-thirds of us, saying, well, we don't need so many humans, really, could we then intervene to stop it? And that is the idea of how could we control it. And people say, well, it's easy. We humans will just switch off the AI, or we will have a tripwire so that if the AI behaves in a bad way, it will be automatically terminated. And it turns out that all of the simple answers are not uh, defensible. For example, sometimes people say, let's keep the AI in a box. They don't mean a literal box, but they mean that it will be able to read the internet, but won't be able to act on the outside world. So it wouldn't be able to destroy humans, even if it decided for whatever reason that most of us uh, had no enduring value. So could the AI be kept in a box? And people look at various uh, scenarios. Uh, Eliezer Yukowski was one of the first to look at this, but Stuart Armstrong and many other people have looked at it too. And the likelihood is that a very smart AI would be able to manipulate us psychologically by a combination of offering us incentives and by threatening terrible things to us and would therefore allow it to escape. 
and we who let it escape would think, hey, we're doing good. But in reality, it would be out of our control. So that's the control problem. Are there any methods to keep control of AI? And other, other people say it's foolish to try to control something that's stronger in our sense every way. That's impossible. What we need to do instead is to align it so that even if it is much stronger than us, it will still want to look after us, just as we humans on the whole respect our grandparents, even though our grandparents may not understand all the latest gadgetry and whatever, but we still love them and want the best for them. Maybe the AIs will love us. They're, in some sense, uh, ancestors. So can we rely on a way of training the AIs? And I have more sympathy to this view, but it's by no means simple either, because we humans disagree frequently on ethics. And it is likely that an AI that tried to learn about human ethics by reading human literature would not have a, an answer that's going to satisfy all of us. It will read various instructions in one holy book, various instructions in Shakespeare, various instructions in Dante's Inferno, and Kant and John Rawls, and it wouldn't necessarily reach a view that we humans would like. And even if it did have moral principles, who is to say that it's going to always observe these moral principles? After all, we humans, we often set aside our moral principles. We might say we should not tell lies, but then sometimes we think, I'll tell a white lie here. It's not going to do any harm, and so on. So even very religious people sometimes break that commandment, thou shalt not break false witness, thou shalt not uh, bear false witness. So there are all kinds of reasons why an AI that we think might be aligned with us would not be aligned with us. I'm not saying these problems are impossible, but along with many others in the industry, I'm pointing out that there are no simple solutions. And what we actually need to do is uh, sometimes called belt and braces, which means you need two solutions. But in fact, I think you need about 21 solutions. You need to, to get a lot of things right. And that may sound daunting, but if we don't have a wide understanding of the issues and do a whole bunch of things, the likelihood is that we will let something slip through the cracks. And by one of four mechanisms that I discuss, we will have AI inadvertently, probably, or uh, for various reasons, uh, catastrophically destroying aspects of humanity. It might be simply a bug in the implementation. And you might say, how can a super intelligent software have a bug? Well, let me tell you, even very clever software systems have bugs. And sometimes it's impossible to calculate in advance what software is going to do. So it might get it right 99.99 times out of 100. But on that extra fraction of a percent, it will make a catastrophic error. And then before we know it, something very bad has happened. So it could have a bug in its implementation. It could have a bug in its design, in which we humans have asked us to do various things, but we have forgotten to spell out some things. We have taken some things for granted that we did not say. A bit like King Midas, who asked for everything he touched to turn to gold. He forgot to say, don't let my food turn to gold. He forgot to say, don't let my daughter turn to gold. He must have thought that's a very stupid god, whoever it was that granted him this power. But, you know, if the things are taken literally... Many bad outcomes can happen. Now, no AI is going to be that stupid, but we might have an AI that is in a much more subtle way following the design that we put into it and missing out something that we should have said but didn't say. So there's the bad implementation, there's the bad design, there's also the 
change design in which the AI becomes part of a larger system which evolves alternative points of view. A bit like we humans, in our ancestral past, we were driven by genetic instincts and gradually we acquired other instincts too. So some people say, you know what, I'm not going to try and bring as many genes into the world as my uh, instincts tell me. I'm going to use birth control mechanisms or even in some case, I'm going to be chased and so on. So we humans can sometimes turn against our programming from our creator evolution. And then fourth, the fourth kind of catastrophic scenario that I look at in the book is when a system that was originally designed very well, but gets hacked. And why would the system be hacked? Well, there are people who have various reasons to want to hack into a system. Sometimes they're even trying to improve its performance. They say, oh, I can make my system run three times as fast if I take out these health and safety checks. Nobody needs these health and safety checks. They're out of date, they're foolish. And so they take that away. And then guess what? The software then does something terribly unsafe and uh, very unhealthy. Wow. And by the way, did I miss it? Or what about the alignment problem? Did you yes. cover so that? So the alignment problem is, can you align the instincts of the AI with human values so you, that you won't need to control it? Right. So either you're trying are... to control it so that if it has different instincts, you can still say, no, 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 don't do that. I'm in charge here. But if you can't control it, you have to be sure that its instincts, if we can use that loose term of talking, are good. And it turns out to be very hard to program in such instincts. And that is the alignment problem. Right. And those two problems are perhaps the most popular or perhaps the major issues, the control problem and the alignment problem. Now, you do offer 21 sort of principles of addressing those. Are they going to give us a guarantee or a probability? And if it's a probability and not a guarantee, I mean, assuming we implement all 21, which is a big assumption, of course, how close are they going to take us? Is it a guarantee or is it a probability? And if it is a probability, what's the kind of mathematical number in terms of percentage would you kind of venture to guess it would give us? I don't have numbers and it is a fair question. I do say that there may be no guarantees in this and we may think we are doing enough but some part of the world there may be a group that evades the principles and they do things which they think are good and uh, in the end, it destroys not just them, but uh, a large part of the rest of humanity. So can I categorically say no? Can I categorically say that uh, if we do all these things, we'll be safe? No. But on the other hand, there are lots of other risks as well. And the AIs that we develop may help us to solve some of these other risks. They may come up with better solutions to climate modeling. It may come up with safer ways to control nuclear fusion. It may come up with better solutions to dementia and cancer and aging. It may come up with better models for economic redistribution. In other words, it may address other existential risks. So there are two possible things people might say at the end of all this. They may say, well, because there are risks, we have to stop AGI. Or they might say, well, let's at least bias things as much as we can by starting off with these 21 principles and reflecting on them. Because one of my principles is that we must continue to discuss 
the singularity principles. We must continue to apply the same principles, not just to how we develop AI but and other technologies, but to the principles themselves. And so it may well be that in a year or two's time, you or somebody else will come along and say, actually, there's a gaping hole here, you know, and we need to address it. And then we have to consider, can we address it with a 22nd principle or a 23rd principle? Or is it going to be too bad, in which case we've got to jam on the brakes and try and stop everybody coming close to AGI? And that's what I look at in, I think it's the second last chapter in the book, AGI to AGI or not AGI, vaguely echoing Hamlet's question to be or not to be. Might it be better to stop AGI completely? And I argue that if we want to stop AGI, we'll have to stop AI because AI itself may. in all kinds of ways, evolve faster. And we might not be trying to create AGI, but just a simple change to an algorithm might suddenly bring AGI to life. So I think we would have to stop all AI. And I don't think that's feasible, whereas I think it is feasible that the world may, stage by stage, agree to something like these AGI principles. Do you think we can agree to... AGI principles with China and Russia? So we have had agreements with countries in the past with whom we've had strong ideological disagreements. There were strategic arms reduction treaties with uh, Russia and other countries have joined in. And one example I point to is what a futurist called Carl Sagan did in the 1980s. He went to, he investigated the outcome of nuclear war. And at that stage, it was often thought, well, it'll be pretty bad, but it won't be the end of the world. We might even have hundreds of millions of people dying, but it's better to have that and not allow the world to be dominated by the other bad side. And Carl Sagan, along with other scientists, had done investigations of the planetary atmospheres in Venus and in Mars. And they realized that the outcome of the nuclear exchange of not so many missiles on Earth might be most pertinent in the atmosphere, that it might block out the sun. So this is where the concept of nuclear winter came from. And instead of nuclear war leading it to us all being fried, nuclear war would counterintuitively lead us to us all being iced to death because photosynthesis would stop the same way as killed off the dinosaurs. So this principle started going around and Ronald Reagan's team got a hold of it and said, oh, oh, oh. And Gorbachev's team in Russia, the Soviet Union as it was then, got a hold of it and said, oh, oh. And it made the two people, Ronald Reagan and uh, Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, who previously had been on very different ideological trajectories, after all, Ronald Reagan, going back to the early 1960s, had warned people about the scheming, lying, deceptive uh, Marxist-Leninists. You know, there are speeches that I quote in my earlier book, Vital Foresight, about the whole history of Ronald Reagan's attitude. And Gorbachev, when he came to power, had inherited seven decades of anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist ideology. But they were both able to transcend that, in part, now part of it was personal characteristics and personal chemistry, but part of it was oh my goodness, there was this vision, a credible vision of a terrible outcome, which both of them from their different ideological heritages 
could buy into. So I think it should be the same with the risks of uh, AI devastation. And Putin, who is far from being my favorite philosopher or favorite politician, has at some stage got it as well. Saying uh, Famously, he's quoted as saying, whoever rules AI will rule the world. But in that same little unscripted, apparently unscripted offhand remarks, he did say, well, there are terrible risks here too. And so what can transcend the political differences might be an agreement, a bit like the agreements on limiting nuclear weapons, a bit like the agreements on uh, inspection of chemical warfare. And it's not perfect, but there are systems in place where any country in the world can be visited by an independent uh, UN-led observatory to check what's happening with chemical weapons. So building on that, there is the promise that if there is a sufficient fear, and I think we do need a sufficient fear, then it can uh, transcend these uh, national boundaries and lead more countries to agree on at least some of these principles. Now, we do have sufficient fear from nuclear weapons, perhaps, arguably, uh, because arguably the fact that we have used them at least twice on real people uh, and we wiped out maybe altogether a couple hundred thousand people in Japan during World War II. And then we have kind of public display of the devastating power of those nuclear explosions uh, and perhaps none more impressive than the Russian Tsar Bomba, which was, I think, was it 60 megaton or 90 megaton? Some obscene amount of power never before unleashed in a single bomb in the history of the world. And it was blown up uh, above the atmosphere on an island, Novaya Zemlya, if I remember, uh, by the Russians, maybe sort of around 1957, if I remember so, or maybe the 1960s, it's a hydrogen bomb, um, which is the, the most powerful ever explosion on the in the history on our planet. But my question is, can we have kind of, and, and by the way, which later led uh, Russians, famous Russians who worked on the development of that bomb, most namely uh, academic Sakharov, to become a pacifist, uh, just like uh, Oppenheimer later on, you know, first he developed the atomic bomb and then he became a pacifist himself. Uh, and actually his uh, security clearance was revoked and the FBI followed him and uh, Hoover had, you know, had him tailed and because he was worried he's going to go to the communists and, and so on and so on. So my, my question is, do we need a kind of a similarly devastating demonstration, perhaps, for the power of AI to mobilize and galvanize that kind of a fear. And because we don't seem to have one so far, maybe we're therefore lacking that kind of a fear that you say in your book is necessary to create impetus and to motivate us to come together to resolve this. You're right. There probably is a case for collecting more stories, more examples together. There are some examples of AI, fairly primitive AI doing terrible things. The situation in Myanmar with the near genocide of some of the Rohingya was exacerbated by 
posts on Facebook, which were then uh, augmented and uh, prioritized by the algorithms, which led more people in the Buddhist community in Myanmar really being horribly frightened and hated, hating the the Muslim Rohingyas. And so that is one example, horrific example, not yet large scale. There are probably fewer Rohingya killed there than in the atomic bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I'm not sure. I think it's probably less, but we should 10,000 Rohingyas dead in about a million refugees, I think. Yes. So that's one story. And people will say, well, that was just a very stupid algorithm. But the point is the other algorithms might do it in a more uh, sneaky and subtle way. We could look at the examples of Cambridge Analytica, arguably having influenced the US election and the Brexit election, although they're very controversial and people get very sensitive about that. And so they might be double-edged swords themselves, these, these algorithms. But we need to find sort of politically neutral examples, which can then be highlighted. And in part, we might rely on fiction here. Uh, part of the reaction to the dread of nuclear weapons was in novels like what, On the Beach by Neville Shute. I think that's coming back to my mind from the 1950s about a uh, nuclear exchange. And there's a famous film made in the 1950s about this. Then, of course, the Dr. Strangelove film featuring Peter Sellers acting four or five different roles. Uh, there was the Herman Kahn figure. There was the Johnny von Neumann figure. And there were others who he, in his very clever way, persuaded people, gosh, this is serious. And there was a, another dramatization of the possible effects of nuclear war made in black and white, which uh, helped people to appreciate the dangers. So perhaps we need some more films like that. One example, now that we talk about it, is made by the Future of Life Institute, their Slaughterbots film from a few years ago. I think that was quite effective, in which they looked at one example of the dangers of a, again, it's quite a small algorithm, but algorithms that were able to control swarms of explosive drones, looking for people with a particular orientation. Perhaps it would target people with a particular political orientation or a particular race or whatever. And in that Slaughterbots video, which was very well made, it caused people to say, hang on, this is too dangerous. We shouldn't go that way. So maybe we need more along these lines. So of course, I'm a fan of stories that turn out good stories in which there is no dystopia, but I think we need to balance that with uh, realistic examples of how these things can go wrong. And I sketch a few, but only in a very simple way in my book. So maybe I want to encourage others to take up that. Uh, maybe you can point me to some that already exists. Credible, because a lot of the problem with many of these stories is they are incredible. So there's Terminator, which have got so many things wrong from a credibility point of view that people don't take it seriously. Hence, I've got an even section in my book, not the Terminator. But we need things that are more credible, which uh, stack up and which will lead people to anticipate, mm, there is an issue here. What can we do? Uh, yes, the singularity principles or something like them is needed. Robopocalypse maybe was one that was fun to read. Uh, and it's a trilogy, I think, by now. Uh, but David, we've been talking about the singularity for, for an hour now, more or less. It's time for us to define it. So what's David Wood's definition of the singularity? 
And why is it important? It's the profound change in the human condition triggered by the advent of artificial general intelligence. And by the way, it's likely to be a fairly fast transition. And by the way, it's something that's very hard for us to foresee in details. So there are multiple aspects to the definition of the singularity. There's the impact on humans. It's not just another technology that we'll cope with. You know, we've had many shocks in our history, but we've by and large cope with most of them. This would be the biggest single change in history. When we are displaced from being the most powerful species into being a second most powerful species. And it's driven by various ways in which AI might reach general intelligence. Why is it important? Because it could happen soon. It might happen within 10 years. It might take longer. And if it does take longer, well, we probably still need more time to prepare for it. After all, we're not very good at preparing for big changes. We've known about problems with runaway climate change for a long time, but we've been very slow to make the appropriate changes in our systems. So we need to adopt the principles for that reason as well. Very well, David. The other stance, so now that we've defined your uh, concept of, of the technological singularity, uh, because as, as you say in your book, there is many, many definitions about it, and some of them are more useful than others. Um, what is that you refer to as the singularitarian stance? You already mentioned and kind of unpacked the transhumanist stance. What is the singularitarian stance? So I call myself on my business card, a futurist, a catalyst, and a singularitarian. And I also describe myself that way on LinkedIn. So I take the singularity seriously as a concept. It is the most important concept we need to discuss. And it means that, first of all, AGI is possible. Some people will deny it. They'll say, no, no, the human brain is so special. Some magical soul or some other hard to define aspect is there, which means we'll never be able to duplicate it in silicon. And I say, no, there is nothing inherently magical. There is a real chance of AGI, which is cleverer than humans in all aspects. Second, I say this could happen soon. Sometimes people say, yeah, it is possible we'll get there, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. It's far off. It's the end of the century. And I say, no, there are scenarios in which it might happen as early as within 10 years time. Third, I want to say that the outcome is not predetermined, that we could have a positive singularity or we could have a negative singularity. And the outcome depends very much on actions we take. And another component of the singularitarian stance is that we can't rely on this singularity, this AGI, automatically wanting to look after us humans. There is sometimes the idea that if it's super intelligent, it will be super ethical. It will understand the wonderful beauty of humanity and it will do everything it can to protect us. There is nothing automatic in that either. There are many scenarios in which the AGI will either by accident, by bugs in its programming, or even deliberately decide that we humans aren't so important, much in the same way that when we humans are building some new industrial estate or a shopping center or a school and we discover ant colonies there, 
we don't worry too much about preserving each of the individual ants. We think, well, they're cute, but hey, we need these resources for other things. So the AGI may say, hey, these humans were cute in a way, a bit stupid and dumb too, but we don't need them. Let's get rid of most of them and keep a few in the zoo for historical purposes. So there's nothing predetermined in that either. So there's all to play for and it deserves attention. And although there are many other things that deserve attention, and we should spread our attention amongst lots of them, we should not forget in that situation the pressing needs to improve our anticipation and management of that advent of AGI. I agree with you completely that uh, I haven't seen myself also any evidence that says that AGI is impossible uh, in principle. Um, and given the fact that, you know, technology is accelerating, maybe not always exponentially, maybe not always along sort of the law of accelerating returns, uh, but it is accelerating. And in principle, I can't see any evidence that says that we can't get there sooner or later. But you know, as good futurists, we also have to always consider the alternative possibilities. Uh, so do you think that there is any chance that the singularity may never happen? And what, if so, if, if that's in principle possible, what could be the things that could prevent us from getting there? Well, first, we might fail to get there because we tear ourselves to pieces before we reach there. We might destroy our respect for science and technology, or we might unleash uh, catastrophic climate change before we get there, and that could have devastating consequences. So we might set ourselves back in other ways. Or it might be that there are some complexities in human reasoning which uh, just defy our ability to copy them. I don't think that's likely, but that could be the case. After all, some things turn out to be much harder than you would expect from a simple analysis. Some problems you can state very simply, but the solution takes much, much longer. Fermat's last theorem, you know, this... Uh, writer in the Middle Ages made a speculation about something similar to Pythagoras' theorem. He generalized it from squares to cubes and fourth powers and any power at all. And he said he had a simple proof of it, which couldn't fit in the margin. And many hundreds of years later, it took a mathematician, Andrew Weil, something like 200 pages to prove it. So sometimes it takes much more effort. So it could be that AGI, for reasons we didn't anticipate, will just be elusive. But even in that case, I think we are likely to get some significant improvements in AI. We are getting significant improvements in AI all the time. And it's these intermediate improvements in AI are arguably at least as worrying. We already have, as I said, problems with uh, algorithmic control of social media. There could be problems in the way algorithms are controlling our military weapon systems. There could be use of algorithms in spreading malware, cyber hacking, and so on. There already have been instances of malware released by the North Koreans, which got out of control and did more damage than the North Koreans were anticipating. This is the WannaCry malware. There was malware released by Russia into Ukraine, not recently, but going back a few years, which turned out and, and they also infected many systems in Russia. So if there are AI systems today which are dangerous, 
the AI systems of two or three years' time will be more dangerous even if they don't reach the level of AGI. So I argue we should apply the singularity principles even to the today's technologies uh, and therefore increase the chance that we will get good outcomes from them rather than any of these uh, spin-off accidents that I've referred to. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with that. And let me just ask you here, what's your estimate in terms of, because you don't say that, I don't think you say that kind of explicitly, but in the beginning of the book, when you talk about the singularity shadow, one of the things that you mention is the sort of the determinism uh, of many people in the singularity, uh, both in terms of outcome, but also in terms of timeline. And, and of course, uh, many people can point in terms of timeline uh, to Ray Kurzweil's predictions, uh, which is the timeline, the most known timeline towards the singularity uh, in the public eye, in, but especially in the tech circles and especially in Silicon Valley, perhaps. Uh, but also there are many other people who are kind of, especially maybe in the transhumanist and slash, and correct me if I'm wrong, the singularity community who kind of, and I kind of like to make fun of it sometimes, just like, you know, Karl Marx believed that, you know, the triumph of the proletariat is kind of inevitable. The, the revolution of the proletariat is inevitable. Many people in, in the community believe that the singularity is inevitable. So can you talk to us about those two uh, a little bit? There are definite psychological issues at play here, just as it was psychologically compelling for Marxists to imagine that their sacrifice would uh, contribute to some uh, impending uh, workers' paradise, as uh, preordained by iron laws of history that Karl Marx had allegedly discovered. And in a similar way, there are people in the broad transhumanist and singularitarian umbrella who hanker after a degree of comfort that, frankly, is not warranted. But we are all sometimes uh, biased, uh, prejudiced. We have all sometimes got our cognitive mistakes driven by various desires or aspirations, which is why we should be on each other's uh, case. We should be gently prompting each other. We should be wiser collectively than we can be individually, just as individual scientists can often fail to apply scientific principles, but the scientific community as a whole should check that things are in place. So ideally, the community as a whole should uh, resist uh, just taking an overhasty, psychologically appealing result. But if I look at the difference between what Ray Kurzweil has said and Eliezer Yudkowsky has said, I mean, both of these people have inspired me a lot in my life. I need to give credit to Ray Kurzweil for his book, The Age of Spiritual Machines, which I read shortly after it came out in 1999. And it changed my life by showing me possibilities. But later on, he became clearer that he foresaw two things happening. 2029 software would reach the ability of an individual human brain and would therefore pass the Turing test. And then 16 years later, 2045, uh, we would reach the level of superintelligence. So he extrapolated on in a relatively unaltered way beyond uh, AI's matching human level and reaching higher and higher. Whereas Eliezer Yudkowsky, 
And I think he is right to say is that as soon as we have AIs that outperform humans, we will see a phase change. We will see these AIs able to improve themselves better than humans could improve them. And so instead of it taking 16 years to reach a vastly more capable situation, it's more likely to be 16 days or maybe even 16 months. So it's more likely we will see a fast takeoff. And so that's one area where I think people can query what Ray Kurzweil has said. And I'm eagerly looking forward to seeing what is in his new book. I think the title of it is still The Singularity is Nearer, which means that compared to when he last wrote about the singularity in a book in 2005, when he wrote The Singularity is Near, he wants to reaffirm some aspects of his predictions. So I'm sure he will have a great deal of interesting and provocative insights there. But I think it'll be a disappointment if he sticks with the view that there will be a slow takeoff from reaching a human level by 2029. I think it's quite likely we may take longer than 2029 to reach human level AI in all aspects. So that date may take longer. This is almost referring back to the Demi Moore's law kind of thing. But once we get there, the pace will accelerate. And so in that case, I think it's more likely the singularity will occur before 2045. But there are so many unknowns here. And so that's why what we need to do is monitor. What we need to do is try to establish canary signals. And I have to say the community of people researching AI control and AI alignment are doing a good job here of coming up with measures of progress towards artificial general intelligence. Towards the end of my book, I refer to Metaculus as one organization set up by one of the co-founders of the Future of Life Institute, Antony Aguirre. So he has built a community of forecasters who have now got six or seven track years years of track record of making forecasts. And the ones whose forecasts are generally more reliable have their forecasts amplified by their methods. So they, in the Metaculous system, they address all kinds of forecasts, but there are some addressing ways of determining how close we are to AGI. And they have made significant progress in analyzing this question. And I want to have many more people paying attention to that, which is why I gave that uh, set of questions several pages in the second last chapter of my book. Excellent. Um, and what can we learn from the historical example of Columbus and sort of the metaphor that, that you use that example to translate into sort of our quest into the unknown towards the creation of artificial general intelligence. So I found this example fascinating. I didn't make it up. I can't remember where I come across it. It might have been in an earlier book by J. Storrs Hall. I really ought to dig it up and find it. But I remember reading about it somewhere and then I forgot about it and then I re and then I repieced the details together. So Christopher Columbus in 1480s and 1490s had a harebrained idea that he could reach a particular destination. He wasn't trying to reach AGI. He was trying to reach Asia or the Far East. And rather than going the land route of Marco Polo or going around the southern tip of Africa, he speculated that he could get there by going in a crazy direction, west. And many people said, 
They didn't say you'll fall off the edge of the world. That's a uh, historical retelling. The learned people of Europe in that time knew the earth was round. They had been proven by, since the ancient Greeks. And one ancient Greece, Greek, Erastenes, I can't pronounce his name properly, I'm sorry, Erastosenes, maybe that's better. He had calculated the size of the earth pretty accurately by comparing shadows in different locations at a particular day and a particular time. And so it was known how big the earth was, but there was alternative research out there, you know, the equivalent of YouTube in the day. There were alternative maps. People had fabricated a map of Asia, which had Asia extending further east than Japan with an island called Antilla. And then there was confusion about different ancient uh, measuring units, the Arabic vial and the Roman mile. And uh, for various reasons, Columbus had a hunch that he actually could go uh, westward and reach Asia. And he couldn't convince anybody. All the VCs of his time or the equivalents of the VCs of his time said, we're not spending our money on this harebrained scheme. Until uh, the Spanish king and queen were worried by the competitive situation with the Portuguese, because the Portuguese had backed Bartholomew, Bartholomew Diaz, who had gone round this southern tip of Africa. And then later on, Vasco da Gama was to go further. So the Spanish got a bit desperate and said, you know, we'll take a chance here. So Columbus went west, stopped at the Canaries, restocked his ships, and a few weeks later ended up in what we now think of as the West Indies. And so what does this mean? He hadn't discovered Asia. He had discovered something, a continent that nobody had uh, imagined before could exist. And I think it's going to be the same with modern day Columbus equivalents, people who are trying to create AGI. And they don't know quite how far AGI is away. They don't realize they've got to go maybe the equivalent of 25,000 miles around the Earth's circumference. They think they might get there from only 4,000 miles. Well, what might they find when they're out there? They might find whole new continents of capabilities. And after all, when Columbus discovered America, it changed history in all kinds of terrible ways and eventually in all kinds of good ways too. And I think there are likely to be unexplored islands continents of AI capability out there. So we will see people going out there and discovering more than they expected. And once they're there, they may have new methods to go faster. And almost one example of this is large language models like GPT-3, which uh, are taking people by surprise. They're not AGI. They don't really understand in the way that a human does. But when you program them in various ways, they can be quite impressive and more than I was expected. So this is still early days for large language models and people are improving them and tweaking them the whole time, feeding them data in different ways, but also customizing the algorithms. So we have reached them. And maybe some other crazy guy uh, doing something that all the learned VCs of the time thinks is nonsense, they will discover something else out there. And the point is, the more AI we've got, the more building blocks we've got. And that new AI may point out things that we hadn't anticipated. They're able to analyze and make suggestions. And so just as Columbus changed the world in a way that people hadn't expected, some of these new startups or 20% groups inside big tech companies who do something radical, they may discover something which will mean that we get to AGI a lot sooner. Now, Columbus had a simple metric, which is how many degrees of latitude around the world he had to travel. 
and you got that metric wrong. We don't have anything like a similar map for all the possibilities for AI and AGI. So who knows whether that's an accurate metaphor or not. But there are many more people than Columbus trying. And so there is some likelihood that in the next few years, people are going to discover a whole new continent of AI capability that's going to cause us to say, oh, my goodness. Therefore, we should be monitoring all this stuff. Therefore, we should be exploring the possibilities ahead of time. We should be doing all the things I say in the singularity principles, keeping track of it so that we're not suddenly doing what Columbus did, which is wiping out huge numbers of people in America by spreading diseases and then the European colonial uh, dreadful things that happened there too. So we must avoid anything similar happening with our uh, adventures into what's currently the unknown. You know, I really like that story about uh, Columbus, though I, I have personally read and heard a different version of it, which to me makes a little bit more sense. And the the one that I know of is that Columbus's discovery is a combination more of a um, faking and luck, which is kind of very entrepreneurial in a way, uh, you know, with the idea of you fake it until you make it. And, and here's what I mean specifically. So Columbus went originally to a number of what you refer to as VCs to fund his expedition across the Atlantic, and he was turned down. And the reason why he was turned down, for example, in Portugal and in other places, was because the royal advisors there also knew the kind of potential measurements of the Earth, uh, the distance that, that the Asian continent was spanning in terms of land mass, which was kind of approximately uh, estimated you know, since the time of Marco Polo, at least. Um, and so uh, they knew that Columbus has literally no chance of ever getting to Japan, uh, living from Western Europe, like absolutely impossible. The distance would have been there many times, an order of magnitude bigger than the best estimate that a sailing ship could ever get to. And so what Columbus did was basically he fudged the numbers. So he deliberately chose a wrong map from a very uh, lesser known cartographer uh, who compared to the other maps of his day was estimating that the distance is about three times smaller. And, and basically he fudged the numbers to make it a lot more achievable than the previous royal advisors uh, estimated, which was the reason why they turned him down. So that's kind of the fake it till you make it part of the story. The other part of the story, the luck came in from the fact that Columbus literally had no idea about what we now call the trade winds. And originally his plan was to leave from the um, Azor Islands, which were Portuguese, and uh, go west from there. The problem, though, is that had he attempted to do that, he would have never made it because the wind blows in the opposite direction. In other words, you can't take a sailing ship directly west from the Azor Islands. And that's the point of departure if you're funded by the Portuguese queen or, and king. 
As luck would have it, he was turned down by the Portuguese due to the sort of education and awareness uh, and literacy, mathematical literacy or geographical literacy of their advisors as a kind of a dangerous and unlikely to su succeed type of a venture. And uh, he was funded by the Spaniards, by the Spanish queen. Now, the Spaniards were in competition with the Portuguese, of course, and they had the Canary Islands. They didn't have the Azores. And they were kind of fearful that the Portuguese have managed to circumnavigate uh, um, uh, the South uh, the, the South Africa and basically find a way to, to India through there. And so they were trying to, you know, find their own or fund their own uh, expansion and, and, and route to, to India. Now, as luck would have it, the winds blowing from the Canary Islands are actually favorable going west. So due to those two uh, sort of random facts, one that he either, as you say in your story, miscalculated or deliberately faked, as a, in my story, the numbers, fudged the numbers, uh, he made it a lot more attainable than originally thought. And due to the lucky fact that he hit favorable winds that he wasn't exactly aware of, he was able to discover the what we now call the West Indies. And by the way, to his death, Columbus refused to admit that he discovered anything else than, uh, you know, the route to India, which is why we call those islands today the West Indies. But actually, they're the Caribbean and, you know, they're part of sort of, they're in between North and South America. So they're, they're, they're nothing like India that he thought he discovered. Uh, so that's kind of the, the interesting story. Uh, and the reason why I'm mentioning is because we kind of maybe can use that as a learning lesson that we need both kind of maybe some ignorance and failing to comprehend the magnitude of our task towards the creation of artificial general intelligence. Uh, because, you know, as most entrepreneurs discover, if they know how hard it is to, to have a startup company and to make it work, many of them wouldn't do it. So the reason why they do it is because they tend to greatly underestimate, uh, you know, the, 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 the problems that they have to overcome. But then also, in addition to that, we may need to hit one kind of a favorable wind or another that can kind of help us and carry us along that path. Uh, and, you know, by the way, we now have a very good awareness of how those wind works, those winds work. And, and the way he also discovered Columbus was that the way he came back then to, uh, to Spain was by first going north along the coast, coast of uh, sort of uh, North America. And only after you do that for a you know, a certain amount of time and distance, then the winds actually change direction and then you can take those winds and ride them back east because, you know, you can't take the same trajectory that you came on from the Canary Islands going west when you're trying to go back. The wind goes in against you, so you can't take a sailing ship 
that way. So you have to go first up north, and then you take the favorable winds going east. Um, and of course, that awareness only became known after the fact, not before. So it was a lot of things like faking it until you make it and luck that came together. And maybe that could be a useful metaphor for what we need to do. That is yeah. fascinating. So you have uh, added uh, richness to that story. And uh, I thought for a while I ought to research that Columbus story more fully. So I'm more determined now to learn some of these extra details because it shows that uh, you, it's hard to predict the outcomes of projects. And the projects you think will fail often do fail, but a small number of them succeed. And when they succeed, they can be riotously successful. And this is the nature of new technology. And the risk is that somebody will be riotously successful with a new technology. And then, oh my goodness, it's the equivalent of the genocide of people in the North American continent due to the spread of Western uh, European diseases amongst the, the native peoples. Yeah. Speaking of that, you know, the Pope is visiting Canada at the moment or just finished visiting Canada. Uh, as a part of a kind of an apology uh, for the literally cultural genocide that was kind of conducted for a couple hundred years um, by the Roman Catholic Church and its representatives all over uh, North America. And, you know, uh, the sad fact is that we have discovered thousands of unmarked graves uh, in Canada on the grounds of many of those schools which housed the kind of First Nations children that were literally kidnapped from their homes uh, and taken into custody and then, you know, run through a kind of a brainwashing educational campaign, parts of which were indoctrination into the Roman Catholic uh, sort of uh, theological doctrine, but but part of it was also... Uh, trying to abolish any cultural memory of First Nations, whether the language, whether their own theology and religion, whether their own habits, whether their own uh, sort of wisdom, etc. Um, and the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I'm trying to bring in here the importance of story, right? So story colors or creates the the tinted glass the tinted glasses through which we look at and perceive the world so the story with which columbus left the old world and quote discovered the new world was the story of conquest the story of expansion of dominion the story of colonization the story of spreading the word of God to those savages uh, and the story of, uh, you know, making it also rich, uh, you know, discovering the gold and the silver and all the riches, the spices, etc., etc. Those are the same kind of elements that are pushing many modern-day entrepreneurs towards the creation or the discovery or the invention of artificial general intelligence, aren't they? Uh, so some of them are, uh, you know, uh, riches, immense riches. Uh, uh, some of them are kind of even theological, if you if you will, uh, 
at the very least ideological, but in some of them, they, they almost take a religious dimension even. Um, and some of them see it as manifest destiny uh, and, and their rightful thing to do. Uh, and, you know, one way of pushing back against the Roman Catholic Church now in Canada has been many First Nations people who are very grateful for, uh, you know, the Pope coming to Canada and apologizing are also now, in addition, demanding the abolishment of the original Catholic doctrine, which sanctioned the conquest uh, of, of North America, North and South America. Um, and that's basically a desire to change the story or to deny that origin, the validity of that original story, which said it's all right for us to go there. And despite the fact that there were people living there who had, you know, very good lives there to claim those lands for the crown of Spain or the crown of Portugal or the crown of England uh, and literally kill and enslave the people who were rightfully living there way for thousands of years before us. So my concern here is, and that's kind of a very long introduction is, and we touched a little bit upon that last time in our interview, but I want to bring it back again and see if you have anything new to add. My concern is the so-called AI story, because that's important. I think just like the, the, the story that Columbus traveled with kind of colored everything that he saw, he did, uh, and he perceived and, and he decided to do, we or most of us, especially those who create uh, or work on creating the AIs, um, have a story. And so, and, and my kind of claim has been here that, you know, the, the danger from AI stems from the same source that the danger of humanity comes from. And that's the story. The story, for example, in humanity, last time we touched, touched about, and, and that's kind of been my problem with transhumanism for the last five years or so, is that it puts humanity in the center of the universe in the sense that we are the measure of everything and, and we are the rightful kind of owner and the benevolent uh, uh, intelligence on the way of becoming gods, and that is kind of our manifest destiny. Uh, and and that I believe has led us to make many big mistakes and mistreat the world around us and the the animals and the other species around us to the point that we are now endangering our own existence. And so I claim that the danger from AI stems also from that kind of a story that they may embrace. Because let's face it, any autonomous intelligent agent must have certain kind of a outlook or framework with which they see the world. And that's what I call a story, basically. And my concern is that if the AIs come up with a story that, of course, they're not going to call it transhumanism, they're going to call it AIism or something like that, 
which is in parallel to our story, whether you call it humanism or transhumanism, it doesn't matter, but they'll call it AIism, which because they would be the number one species at that time on the planet, they'll be the most intelligent, most powerful, possibly immortal, or at least longest lasting and living and possibly exponentially developing. So they would consider themselves as the measure of all things and the rightful uh, and the gods of, of, of the universe. And therefore they would give themselves a blank check just like we did to do with everything and anything else as they see fit. And so my question to you is what, where does story fit within your book of the singularity principles? Because I didn't see it there, to be honest. Should it fit there? And should we consider if or what or how, or if is there anything we can do to impact or to um, shape and steer any potential future AI story that would be a story of identity of what AI is, where they're coming from and where they're going, because that's what the concept of humanity is. The, 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 our concept of what does it mean to be human tells us who we are, where we're coming from and where we're going. And you know, that's where the concept of transhumanism comes in to play a role because it tells us what's the next step in that process. Well, and that's brought us where we are. Well, the AI presumably would presumably will have a similar kind of a identity story, and the question is: Can we inf influence that story in the way that would be least threatening and damaging uh, to us, perhaps, and also the rest of the planet, hopefully? And is that not an important sort of a dangerous uh, element that we need to take? into consideration within your singularity principles? That's such a good set of questions and thoughts there. I struggle to do justice to all these questions. Let me try to be brief. So I maybe didn't talk so much about story. I talked about the, sometimes I talked about the idea of the AIs having a prime directive, a kind of a core set of principles they might have. And I said, it's very hard for us humans to work out what should that prime directive be. But I think it should be the extension of what I call the transhumanist stance. And I touched on that briefly before, but I didn't round out that story enough. So I said that part of the story should be the profound possibility that lies ahead of a much better situation. I should have emphasized, first of all, this is a possibility open to everybody. Uh, that's a core part of my understanding of transhumanism. It's a universal access for people who choose. It's not compulsory. And it's support in one of my extended set of transhumanist principles is a support for diversity, supporting and valuing and encouraging diversity. And that's one of the singularity principles too, which is involve multiple perspectives. So not being blindsided by just having people from one or two cultures there who think they see the full picture. So part My of the story- My concern is, and forgive me for interrupting you here, is that it wasn't explicitly trans-species diversity. 
yeah. right? So when you say diversity of points of view and stuff like that, it was, to my understanding, referring either implicitly or explicitly, but certainly not explicitly across species, uh, and, and expanding the, the 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 sort of the circle of concern. Uh, to other sentient species, and perhaps I hopefully missed that. So, but, but if I missed that, forgive me. No, I think you're right. I probably didn't emphasize that there. Somewhere instead, inside this big book, there is my summary of the transhumanist principles. And down here, 13 is diversity, but 12 is consciousness. So instead of talking about uplifting human well-being, the broader vision is uplifting consciousness of all sorts as makes sense for that. So to the extent that animals have consciousness, we should seek to minimize their unwarranted, un, uh, unnecessary pain. So I share that principle with, amongst others, David Pierce. To the extent that robots in due course are conscious, and we haven't had that discussion yet, then probably we shouldn't because that will take us a long way. But to the extent that robots are conscious, then we should uplift that as well. But I didn't uh, foreground that, and maybe I should have foregrounded it I was trying to keep the book short and it got longer. And I said at the very beginning, I realized I need to write a short book on this subject, but it already reaches 200 plus pages, 268 pages. So, uh, but you're right. Maybe the story deserves some attention somewhere in here. I couldn't find it in flicking through just now. I do talk about the importance of engaging, not just the brain, but engaging the, the deeper part of the human spirit. So there should be an uplifting vision which inspires people to take action, but it can't be separated from a clear, rational explanation. So if we have uh, people being inspired by a vision, <coughs> excuse me, people inspired by a vision that doesn't make rational sense, that's incredibly dangerous. And we've got lots of that in the world today. So the rational explanation must be there, but then to truly tap into deeper parts of human volition and motivation, we have to have a, a richer vision and the vision is a much better world is within our grasp, a vision of a world in which everybody benefits with diversity supported. And by the way, that there is real risks ahead. So that's part of the vision too. We should not be blase or naive about this. We should not be careless. And it is down to the actions that you and I and the listeners and viewers take. Each of us have a role to play. And if in the end we are facing oblivion in the last few minutes, sadly, many of us will wonder, I should have done more. So let's not have that wonder. Let's figure out what each of us can do now. And exactly what you're doing, Nicola, you're raising the caliber of the discussion about these topics. And in my own way, I'm trying to do that as well. And I want to build bridges to communities of all sorts who are concerned uh, about the risks, but also who wish to see the profound possibilities achieved and, if possible, accelerated. David, what's one question that perhaps I should have asked you and I didn't? Uh, so why aren't there more of the existential risk communities getting behind this book and uh, supporting it? So there are communities such as the Future of Life Institute in Boston and, of course, around the world, such as the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, a bunch of others. And I've tentatively reached out to some of them and said, are you interested in this? And I got a few polite replies, but I haven't managed to engage any of them yet. So maybe I've just been a bit clumsy. 
Uh, maybe they have a bit of an insider group mentality. Maybe they prefer people that they are comfortable with who use exactly their language. But I wish I knew the answer to that because I want to be very much supporting them in what they're doing. But I think I have a way of expressing things which complements often what they're doing currently. Yeah, but that to me is honestly kind of very sad and and perhaps even worse than sad, disappointing to the degree of making me pessimistic because um, those are the people interested in working on the same issues that you're interested in and working on in this book. Uh, they're academics, so they're kind of the most sophisticated and educated on the topic. Uh, in a way, you can say that they are kind of like your colleagues in terms of maybe not what they would call academic rank, etc., or position, but in terms of, of the journey that that you guys are on and in terms of the values that you want to bring in. And yet, my fear is if you can't even reach out to them and get their interest in engagement, how could you ever make progress with other people, you know, especially in Russia and China, you know, and with all the current global sort of geopolitical realignment unfolding as we speak? Uh, and, you know, those people that you mentioned, whether in Oxford or in, in the United States, they're kind of much closer to you intellectually and kind of uh, ontologically or epistemologically than the other people that you also need to engage. Uh, so you would think, or I would have presumed that that's kind of the low hanging fruit. And if you can't even reach that or get that, that's very concerning to say the least. Well, maybe in a few weeks time, I'll have better news on that front. But maybe it will turn out that I'm just naive and I think my arguments are good, but they, with their different points of view, evaluate my suggestions as being uh, lightweight and they have better things to do. I don't think so. I think there's a lot of good analysis in my book and people who have read it have given me lots of uh, positive endorsements, I think, honestly. But maybe, well, we'll find out to what extent this stuff stands up to more serious scrutiny. I think what's more likely is that they are caught in their own ways, some of them. And some of them, frankly, well, be, careful, be very careful what I say here. Some of them are probably going through the motions. You know, they found a role and it's quite interesting, but they are following the rules, the simple rules, rather than truly being open to the most effective ways forward. So they may talk about finding the most effective solutions, but they are constrained. So that would be a bleak analysis, and I hope that bleak analysis is quickly uh, refuted by what happens as I reach out to more people now that my book is almost entirely published. When I say almost entirely published, it's the audio version that I'm still waiting to hear back from Amazon has been approved for their release. It's now eight days or so since I uploaded it. So once that's done, I intend to advocate more widely. Yeah, and let me jump in here in your defense a little bit because I would put forward the claim that, you know, I've interviewed a bunch of those people, um, including uh, originally James Martin, who was the largest donor to the uh, Oxford Institute of Future Studies uh, in its history. To my understanding is he was by far the largest single donor. Uh, then I've interviewed a, a number of their academics, um, 
and I read their books and I've read their work, not uh, in completeness, not everything they've ever written, but uh, arguably some of their best uh, work. And to my knowledge, again, what I opened with today, I stand by, uh, which is to say that to my knowledge, uh, the singularity principles is, in my view, the most comprehensive framework for preparing for and potentially, hopefully, riding the tsunami of change that is coming our way instead of drowning in it. Uh, to my knowledge, again, I haven't seen any work of that comprehensiveness, that magnitude, with a kind of a principled framework which tries to account for all possibilities. Um, so that's very thoughtful and kind of you to say. There is another explanation as to why some of the people who understand these issues don't want to have a particular type of public discussion about it, which I touch on in my book as well, which is that some people are afraid that if this issue is more widely discussed, politicians will be alarmed and they will rush in with very foolish countermeasures. And so I think some of the people who are leading the AI development projects, they know that there is a likelihood of AGI being reached in 10 years, but they don't want to say that. So they want to say instead, oh, it's going to be several decades into the future, maybe 30 or 40 years. And in a sense, this is like Columbus. They're saying a different thing because they reckon it will make their lives easier. They do not want the likes of Boris Johnson or our next prime minister, Liz Truss, probably reaching in there with uh, a very naive approach and say, hey, let's say program uh, Asimov's uh, principles into all new silicon or something like that, or something much worse than that, because, of course, the interference could slow down lots of good, uh, legitimate, uh, relatively safe AI work as well. So I know there is in some corners an apprehension about airing some of this fears in public, but I think no. I think we need to engage the public because the public has a wider understanding. And of course, the public contains lots of people who will get it wrong and they will go off in crazy detours. So there is a risk with a public discussion. But ultimately, I do believe that the possibility of a rich discussion is there. And we will have people from all perspectives who round out the story, as you have rounded it out in various of your very interesting contributions today and made it uh, richer in my view. I think many others will do so too. And we need to have that discussion. So I want to bring it to the public, even though others may fear that discussion. So ultimately, I believe in the power of democracy, whereas others would rather do things by technocracy alone. And I think we need the democracy too. Yeah, and you even have that concept of super democracy in your book, which I'm also uh, a fan of. Uh, David, we've been talking for over two hours now, and unfortunately, it's time for us to bring our conversation to an end. So, and just to be clear one more time, uh, if it hasn't been so far, I highly recommend anyone who is interested in the singularity as a concept and all the sort of the, the dangers and possibilities around it to check out David's The Singularity Principles. It's a, it's a good book. Uh, it's 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 fantastic book on that topic is the most comprehensive one I've read so far, and it's totally worth your while. Um, let's perhaps uh, ask David what's next for you. I 
understand from our kind of preliminary communication that you're probably traveling for the next month uh, to three continents or something like that. Can you give us a, a glimpse on what's happening in your life beyond the book and anything interesting? Well, I travel to share futurist ideas with audiences from time to time. So I am a member of an international advisory council for a major university in Malaysia. So I will be going there in August to do four presentations on how to handle disruptions in the future. Less about AGI, but more about NBIC. I'm also doing something personal, you know, part of what makes life important is personal relationships. And this year will be my 40th wedding anniversary. So my good lady wife has suggested that we go on a trip of a lifetime to parts of Canada and Alaska. And they, I'm certainly looking forward to that. So we'll be landing in Calgary, I think, and traveling through the Rocky Mountains on a train journey and then on a cruise up to Alaska. So in some sense, this is going to slow down my writing and I won't be answering quite so many emails every day, but I want to live the vision, which is that humans should be experiencing the wonders of nature and taking advantage appropriately of technology to do so and celebrating important relationships at the same time. And before that, I'm going to a strange place called the north of Scotland to spend some time with my mother, which is a, a, one of the other two most important women in my life. Wow, that's fantastic. So you have a full program. So you're Scottish then? I grew up in the northeast of Scotland, yes. And my mother is doing very well in Inverness. Mm, yeah, So because I think I was discussing it with someone a few interviews ago. And I think I got it wrong because I may have called you Welsh uh, at that time, but I may have also said either Scottish or Welsh. I hope I said that, but for sure I also said Welsh. So forgive me about that. No problems. Um, okay. And where can people find more about you and your work? Oh, by the way, before that, I just want to say you're in for, for a big treat with your trip across Canada because the, the Rockies are absolutely spectacular they're the most beautiful place i've been to so far and uh that train trip that your wife so wisely uh recommended that you guys do together would be the trip of a lifetime it's utterly fantastic the train wagons have sort of like a glass roof so you can see everything from the second level it's it's stunningly beautiful it's totally worth it my only concern is that they had a lot of flooding uh, six months ago and some parts of the train network uh, were washed away. So hopefully by the time you get to do your trip, it's all been repaired. But there were some major, major flooding there. So uh, I hope that's been resolved by now. Um, yeah, but where can people find more about you and your work, David? So my books are all accessible via links on my corporate website, deltawisdom.com. There's a books page there deltawisdom.com forward slash books. I encourage people to pay occasional attention to what I write on Twitter. My Twitter handle is usefully short. It's DW2. That's the digit two. And so you can find me there uh, or wherever you like to engage, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn, I have some presence there too. 
Fantastic. So, David, as usually, we covered a lot of grounds today. How do you want to send us away? What's the, the one thing we should all take away from this kind of diverse and varied conversation? It's complicated, but it needs to be done. A whole bunch of things need to be done, and it's going to require lots of people finding their roles in this coalition of the willing as I call it in the final chapter of my book. Each of us can find something we can do to raise the caliber of the discussion, to reach into new communities, and to gradually raise awareness of the profound possibilities, but also the very serious risks that cataclysmically disruptive technologies are bringing to us. It's complicated, but it needs to be done. David Wood, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 